Hello, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast, the show where Mark Meckler and Rita Peters discuss hot-button issues from a biblical perspective, helping to equip other Christians to bring light to a darkened culture. Rita is the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs, and Mark serves as the CEO and co-founder for Convention of States Action. Find out more by visiting conventionofstates.com pod. Welcome to another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm your host, Rita Peters, and I'm sad to report that my faithful co-host, Mark Meckler, is out on the road today. He's not going to be with us. He is in Cheyenne, Wyoming, preparing for a committee hearing on Convention of States. And if you've heard me say Convention of States a bunch of times and you want to learn more about what that is all about, I encourage you to visit the Convention of States website, conventionofstates.com. But don't worry, everyone. I have a great program planned for you today with a very special and distinguished guest. His name is Matt Sharp, and he is senior counsel with an organization that is near and dear to my heart. It's Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF is a nonprofit organization that is on the very front lines of the battle to protect religious liberty, life, and the family from a culture that is increasingly bent upon marginalizing them. Matt Sharp serves as the director of the Center for Legislative Advocacy at ADF and focuses on state and local legislative matters. He advises governors, legislators, and state and national policy organizations on the importance of laws and policies that protect First Amendment rights. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, this show focuses on the intersection of faith and our culture, which means that we often address public policy issues. So as someone who works with public policy as your day job, your actual career, tell us how your faith informs what you do. And do you think Christians have a role to play in the public policy realm? Yeah, my faith definitely shapes a lot of the work I do. Um, And in fact, it's really what led me into this line of work to begin with. Um, I'm a pastor's kid, and I remember growing up. Uh, my dad talking about that the day could come where, uh, because of him preaching on biblical truth um, of what the Bible teaches about a variety of things of, of marriage, of what it means to be male and female, um, that he could be punished one day for that. And as a kid, that really stuck with me and is what led me to, to law school and to eventually joining Alliance Defending Freedom, where we get to stand on the front lines with pastors, with doctors, with people from all walks of life that are trying to stand for the truth, that are trying to live consistent with what the Bible teaches um, and in a way that honors God, and unfortunately find themselves being punished for that, uh, having the government come after them, having their right to free speech, their right to exercise their religion censored by the government. And so in terms of this, my faith is what motivates me to do this, to wake up in the morning um, to help legislators and policymakers and others that share these beliefs, that share these passions to draft good legislation um, that can help protect these constitutional freedoms and to make sure that the door is always open for the spread of the gospel. 
And it's mm-hmm. one of the things I, I so like to encourage people of faith to do. Um, often we, we're told, you know, keep, keep your faith to yourself. It doesn't belong in the public sphere. It doesn't belong in the legislature. Well, that's simply not the case. Um, the legislature is supposed to reflect our national values, our state values, our local values. And if people of faith hide that, if they don't show up, what well, means that those with different values, different ideologies, some that are sometimes very harmful, are the ones whose voices are being heard. And that's why it's vital for Christians to make their voices heard, to get involved in the legislative process, whether it's going to testify, meeting with their legislature, perhaps even running for a legislative office themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Matt, your story is a little bit similar to mine in that um, the same sorts of concerns were what led me to go to law school as well. You know, hearing um, about religious liberty being threatened, particularly hearing about students who weren't permitted to reference their own personal faith as they gave um, speeches as the valedictorian of a school or, excuse me, students who weren't allowed to pray with their teams before or after a football game. Those kinds of things led me to want to be part of this fight as well. And that was why I went to law school too. But Along the way, Matt, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, I have run into a lot of people who, you know, would say, oh, you know, Christians shouldn't sue people. Um, We shouldn't, you know, be on the offensive in any way. We should just kind of keep to ourselves and, and do our own thing. So have you run into that? And, you know, how do you, how do you respond to people who say that kind of thing? Cause I find it really frustrating. <laughs> yes. I, we do have that. Uh, occasionally we'll have people say, you know, that the Bible says we're not supposed to take our brother to court and some of those scriptures. And, and obviously those are 100% correct when it comes to controversies within a church. Um, we should not, if, if, you know, a fellow member of my church were having a dispute about something, we shouldn't be taking that to court. But I think that's very different than when outside forces, the government or others, are violating our rights. And I always like to point people towards Paul as an example of this. Um, when he was um, beaten uh, because he was preaching the gospel and he said, hey, don't you know I'm a Roman citizen? You're not supposed to do that. I have rights as a Roman citizen that you have violated. And I believe it was the captain of the guards tried to sort of hush it. Oh, no, you know, we'll, we'll hide it under the rug. And Paul says, no. You violated my rights, and I'm actually going to appeal to Caesar. He used the legal system and the rights that were available to him as a Roman citizen. And God actually worked through that. It was through that that he was able to go to Rome and and be a missionary there. And so I tell believers, God has given us as Americans rights. It's given us constitutional freedoms, and it's given us a process, the court system, that when those rights are violated, we can go and have those rights protected, not just for ourselves, but for others. As you mentioned, a a student that stands up for their right to start a Bible club at school or share their faith, their court victory can open the door for countless of other students to be able to share their faith as well. So I always encourage people biblically. You've got clear examples of Paul um, of asserting his rights and using the legal system and reminding them that God can use their stand on these issues, can use a legal victory to help spread the gospel, to help let others know of their freedom and their right to be able to share and live out their faith. Absolutely. Well said, Matt. Now, tell us a little bit more about your specific role with ADF, because I'm guessing a lot of our listeners aren't even aware that legislative policy is something that Alliance Defending Freedom 
is involved in. You know, most of us um, who know about ADF are familiar with lawsuits and Supreme Court cases. And um, we've talked a lot about Jack the Baker, even on this program. So we know what you do in the Supreme Court realm. Um, but tell us a little bit more about your role. Sure. So I've been with ADF for about 13 years now and started off doing litigation, doing public school cases. And it was probably about six or seven years ago um, that we started getting calls from parents concerned about uh, males being allowed to go into girls' restrooms. Um, and we also were, were having situations where students were being denied the right to form a Bible club. And around that time, we started having legislators reach out to us and say, I heard about this case you were working on with student privacy or students' rights being violated. What can we do as, as a legislature to make sure this isn't happening? And so we started helping them and sort of guiding them in, in how to draft good, solid legislation that we knew could hold up in court that would protect these rights. And through that, Alliance Defending Freedom recognized we need a policy shop. We need attorneys who are experts on drafting legislation, on working with legislators and helping to advise them on bills and issues that are coming up. Um, and so as, as I had kind of been prayerfully considering this, I, I liked the idea. I'm sort of taking my legal skills and being able to use them to help uh, incredible men and women that are standing up for truth in the legislature day in and day out. And so we formally uh, started a legislative advocacy team several years ago and have grown that and are now being involved in life issues and religious liberty issues, marriage and family, um, and some of the battles over what it means to be male and female. And we've been really honored to be able to serve legislators. That's that's really our role in all of this. We want to be a sounding board for them, to give them advice on how to craft language that can stand up in courts, um, that can accomplish their goals, and can really help ensure constitutional freedoms are being protected in their states. Well, what an incredible service that is to Christians across America. I know um, when when people come to me to ask about particular legislation and you know whether something is good policy or not, I mean, there's that part of the issue is an I certain idea or position, a good policy position. But then you also need to know whether the bill is a good bill whether it's drafted well, whether it fits within the context of the rest of that state's, you know, body of statutory law. So there are really, you know, a lot of nuances, a lot of technicalities that go into this. And we really need sharp attorneys, sharp attorneys. <laughs> I didn't even do that on purpose, Matt. Um, but we really need attorneys like you who are committed to doing that work, who have the expertise to not just propose a good idea for policy, but to actually work through it, you know, figure out the nuts and bolts and make it good, a good bill that will become good law. Now, Matt, I want to focus today on a particular issue that is of grave concern to many of us, and that is this trend of gender reassignment procedures, medical procedures, medical treatment being done to minors. In other words, we're talking about medical treatments and surgeries being done in order to ostensibly change the gender of a child. Can you give us some idea of how common or widespread this trend is? Yeah. So we know if you roll back the clock that there have always been 
individuals that have felt discomfort with their biological sex. Um, we've known that's been the case. And generally, this has been treated as, as a, a mental issue, that you give them counseling, you give them psychotherapy to help them embrace their God-given biological sex. Um, we know that there's lots of sort of body dysmorphia issues, individuals with um, eating disorders and things like that, that they just feel there's something wrong with their body. And we've treated that with counseling. Well, uh, during sort of the 60s and 70s um, in Europe, there was this move to say, well, maybe we need to use um, hormones and surgery to help change their body to look like what they think they are. Um, even though we know that a person's biological sex, it's written into every cell of your body. There's no surgery. There's nothing that you can do that can change that. But the idea was, well, if we change your body, put it through surgery, put it through hormones, maybe that will resolve it. And so several European countries started doing that. And then sadly, it spread to the United States. Um, and we have seen really within the past 10 years or so, this explosion in these gender clinics, as they call themselves. So rather than it being a handful of kids that were going with these, these issues of discomfort with their, their biological sex, it's exploded where there's now hundreds of them across the country and tens of thousands of kids that are going into these places. And rather than focusing on counseling, of, of trying to get to the bottom with these kids of what is causing this discomfort, this anxiety with your body, these gender clinics are immediately putting them on puberty blockers, on hormones, and even in some circumstances, surgery for kids that can leave them unable to have children of their own, permanently sterile. Um, we're hearing stories of, of double mastectomies on young women who uh, want to identify as a male. And sadly, as these individuals are growing into adulthood, they're living with the lifelong consequences of this. Europe now is reversing course. Some of the very same countries that pioneered this have now realized that it is doing irreversible damage. And in fact, resulting in, as a, one study from Sweden pointed out, 19 times higher rates of suicide for individuals that went through this process and got the surgeries. And so Sweden made the decision, we're going to severely limit any more medical interventions on kids because it looks like we're actually pushing them towards suicide. We're pushing them towards permanent damage to their bodies rather than helping them. And so they are returning back to the counseling, the psychotherapy that we know can truly help these children. But again, sadly in the US, we seem to be pushing kids further and further down this one way uh, pipeline towards the surgeries, the sterilization, towards the irreversible damage to their bodies. Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting to hear you frame it that way because at the same time as we have, you know, these uh, burgeoning medical treatments and surgeries to to change a child's body fundamentally um, in order to help them, you know, become whatever gender they want to be ostensibly. Um, it also seems like there's a corresponding trend to say that with regard to counseling, counselors are not allowed to you know, engage in certain forms of counseling, particularly when it comes to um, homosexual issues. You know, do you, it, that seems to me extremely disturbing that not only is there this new trend of the surgeries and medical treatments, but we're also shutting down the counseling often. It, isn't, that, isn't that weird or bizarre? It, it really is, and it's tragic. Uh, there's studies that have said if a child that has gender dysphoria, this discomfort with their 
their gender and sex. If you just let them go through puberty naturally, um, don't put them on puberty blockers, don't put them on hormones. Um, so, some studies have shown 90 to even 95% of these kids will grow out of it and they'll go on to normal, healthy adult lives. And so if you can get them counseling, if they can go to a counselor and say, this is what I'm feeling and be able to sit down and have conversations, we know that we can resolve that in the vast majority of kids. And those statistics flip. If you put them on puberty blockers, one study said 98% of kids on puberty blockers are going to go on to hormones. And 100% of the kids you put on hormones are going to go on to surgery. So you've got this sort of pipeline that's being developed. And as you said, at the same time that they're pushing kids towards medical interventions, they're taking away the counseling that can help them. They, they label it so-called conversion therapy. But what that really is, is saying a counselor can't sit down with a child who's the child saying, <clears throat> I have this discomfort, I have this um, anxiety and these feelings, can you help me with that? And in these states that are passing these counseling censorship laws, the counselor cannot give them the very therapy that can help that child become comfortable with their biological sex and avoid the need for medical interventions. And so you really do see this, that I, don't know, it's, I don't know if it's a coordinated effort to say, we're gonna take away the counseling that helps and push you towards the medical interventions that damage your body permanently. And I think that's so tragic to so many young people that are being harmed by this. It is absolutely tragic. Now, let me ask you, Matt, why is Alliance Defending Freedom concerned about this whole issue? What is it that sort of brings this issue within the mission and focus of Alliance Defending Freedom? I think there's two reasons Alliance Defending Freedom has gotten involved in protecting minors from these harms. Number one, we see how when these medical interventions are being pushed and when the counseling is being censored, it impacts people of faith. For example, we've got a case right now of a counselor in Washington state, Brian Tingley, who for years has helped children with these issues, has sat with countless kids that have been depressed, even suicidal, and had all of these, these mental health challenges. And he's been able to help them overcome that through good counseling. And yet the state of Washington is censoring him and trying to shut him down and prevent him from helping these kids. Brian's a devout Christian, and he's simply trying to help kids navigate these issues. So we see how when you push these uh, medical interventions, it impacts counselors, it impacts doctors who, and we've, we've had some situations where these hospitals, Catholic hospitals, Christian hospitals are being told they must do these harmful surgical procedures or give hormones to kids, and they know that that violates their conscience. So we see how this impacts conscience rights. Second, though, is this is an attack on truth, and I think we have to call it out for that. Um, it is a denial that we have a God-given biological sex, um, that, that our biological sex is unchangeable. And when we deny that truth, it has severe consequences, not only for the kids dealing with these gender medical interventions, um, but we see it playing out with young women in the sports context. We see it with the ability of religious organizations to be able to operate consistent with their beliefs, a, a summer Christian summer camp to be able to have men's and women's cabins, um, even a homeless shelter that we've represented in Alaska that specifically uh, did outreach to women that were fleeing from sexual abuse and trafficking, yet they were told they had to allow a man to come in and sleep literally just an arm's length away from these women that were needing a safe, secure environment as they were um, dealing with the trauma of sexual abuse and trafficking. 
And so when we ignore and deny the biological reality that we are created male and female, there are consequences to people. And that's why Alliance Defending Freedom is standing for that truth, that we are created male and female, and that our laws should reflect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. When we see our culture trying to defy truth, we're all going to suffer, no matter what your personal religious beliefs are. If you're going to try to operate in a culture that, that, you know, has set itself up against truth, we're all going to suffer. It's bad for everyone. So, you know, in some ways I see this as an issue of loving my neighbor to pursue public policy um, that is consistent with truth and to oppose public policy that absolutely defies truth because human beings cannot flourish in a culture that is seeking to defy what's true and right and good. Now, Matt, I know that you and your team at ADF have crafted model state legislation that prohibits doctors and other medical healthcare professionals from performing surgeries or administering medicine when it's done for the purpose of attempting to change the minor's gender. So again, we're talking about children. Tell us a little bit more about what this model legislation does, how it operates. Yeah, so how we operate on our team is we have guiding principles that we like to use when a legislator reaches out to us to say, I've got this bill I'm working on. Can you take a look at it, help craft it? And so when it comes to this area in particular, protecting minors from the harms of gender medical transitions, the three principles are, number one, what are we regulating? What are we protecting minors from? And specifically, we want to look at the puberty blockers, the hormones, and those irreversible sterilizing surgeries. And we've seen some states, for example, say, well, let's just focus on the surgeries. And, and we've had to remind them the puberty blockers are really what start a lot of this, as we were talking about earlier, putting kids on this one-way path towards hormones and irreversible surgeries. But even with puberty blockers, um, this, these are not FDA approved for use for uh, gender dysphoria. Um, even the FDA just last year came out with some, some alarming data about the, the medical side effects of putting kids on this. Um, there's other consequences of brain development, of, of physical development. When you are telling kids, rather than naturally going through, pu through puberty at 11, 12, 13, 14, we're going to deny your body of that, that has consequences on kids. And so we want to make sure the legislative body that is looking at this, that they're addressing all of these things, the puberty blockers, the hormones that do terrible damage. Um, there was the, the whistleblower from Missouri that recently came out and, and wrote a heartbreaking article about what just the hormones were doing to young women that were put on testosterone. Mm. So number one, making sure that we're regulating all that. Number two, um, we also know that there are appropriate uses of some of these things. For example, if you've got an eight-year-old girl that started going through puberty, you may put her on puberty blockers for a short period of time, for a year or two, just to delay it to a more natural time period. And so sure. making sure that we're prohibiting the bad uses while still allowing the good uses. And finally, there needs to be legal accountability. These gender clinics are pushing kids down this one-way path. And as a uh, recent expose from Vanderbilt University, uh, one of the people there said, this is a huge moneymaker for us because they know once you get a kid on these puberty blockers, hormones, and surgeries, they've got a customer for life. 
So we want to hold those gender clinics accountable so that the children harmed by this that are now unable to have a family of their own, that are now having to deal with medical consequences for the rest of their life, that they can sue and hold those gender clinics accountable and, and make sure that we're not allowing any other kids to go through this process to be harmed by this. So again, our kind of three guiding principles that we look at in this legislation is stopping the puberty blockers, the hormones and other harmful things while still allowing the good uses and holding accountable those that are pushing this on children. Well, Matt, when I hear that, and I have looked at your model legislation, it seems like such common sense <laughs> that this is good for children, good for families, good for our culture. Um, so then I try to figure out why would anyone be opposed to this? And you mentioned one possible motivation, which is money. You know, we know that doing these procedures um, is a moneymaker, unfortunately, for some. And it seems to me that the biggest opposition that people voice, because most people aren't going to say, you know, we oppose this because we stand to make a lot of money from it. Opponents claim that this kind of legislation is an intrusion by government into the family because we know traditionally parents have the authority to consent to medical treatments for their children. So explain to our audience, why is this a special case, if you will, that warrants interference with the traditional parental right to consent to medical treatments for their kids? Yeah. So Alliance Defending Freedom, we are strong believers in parental rights and that they do have the right, the God-given right to make decisions about their child's education, mental and physical health, um, religious upbringing, and otherwise. Um, but we also recognize that um, parents can't uh, use parental rights to do things that are unlawful and that are harmful to kids. So, for example, um, if I walk into a liquor store with my 10-year-old and say, hey, sell him a bottle of whiskey, I give consent to him, the liquor store <laughs> owner is going to say, sorry, the state tells me I can't sell that to your child. Yeah. Same thing if I walked into a doctor and said, I'd like for you to give assisted suicide to my child. The physician's going to say, no, it is unlawful for me to do that. And I think we have to recognize absolutely there's a parent's rights that the government can't come in and interfere with how I raise my children. But there's also the ability of the government to regulate professions like doctors and others and to say there are certain things that we know are harmful for kids. All we're saying is once they reach adulthood, they can make these decisions. But as children, you cannot perform these procedures or these other things on minors. And again, parental rights doesn't allow me to force a doctor to do something that is unlawful and ethical and harmful to children. And so that's where I, we think we can both protect parental rights while also ensuring that we're protecting medical conscience and protecting kids from very harmful, damaging, irreversible procedures. Absolutely. So Matt, do any states have laws on the books already? I know they might not necessarily be the ADF model legislation, but do some states prohibit these kinds of procedures and treatments already? Yes, there, there's been a, a very strong growing interest in states to do this. Uh, so Arkansas <laughs> and Alabama uh, were the first states to do this, passing legislation to protect minors from these. Um, unsurprisingly, the ACLU and groups like them immediately challenge, um, rather than standing for kids and families, um, they're challenging these laws. And so those are working through the legal process. But other states have joined. Uh, we've now got South Dakota and Utah that have passed laws. There's one on the desk of the Mississippian governor or the governor of Mississippi. Um, and Florida 
actually uh, went through the process of their board of medicine and board of osteopathic medicine, both did a detailed deep dive into the science and likewise concluded these are harmful for kids and doctors in the state of Florida cannot perform these harmful procedures on minors. So we're seeing more and more states and, and medical bodies speaking out on this and ensuring that kids are not being subjected to this and really protecting the, the ethics and conscience of medical providers as well, who are more and more speaking out about the harms of this and just saying, doctors, our Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. And that's exactly what it seems these procedures are doing is harming vulnerable mm -hmm. children. Yeah, well, it's really encouraging to hear that state legislatures are taking this up and that, you know, even some medical professionals are concerned about it as well. Matt, we're almost out of time, but before I let you go, what else would you want to say to our audience, you know, as far as what's at stake or why we need to be paying attention to this? Yeah, there, there is a... a a lot of pushback when these bills come up in legislatures, um, growing voices, protest, et cetera. And I would just encourage people when these bills pop up in your state, show up, support them. Even if you don't feel comfortable testifying, just to be there to let your legislature know, we believe in this. We support protecting minors from these harms and letting your legislatures know that these bills, these efforts to protect kids reflect the values of voters in your state. And I think that's a powerful voice that our legislators need to hear as they're protecting kids and families. Absolutely. Well, my guest today has been Matt Sharp, Senior Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. And Matt, where can people go to find out more about this issue or your work at Alliance Defending Freedom? They can visit us at adflegal.org where they can learn more about our litigation, but also our legislative work and many of the bills and issues that we've been working on across our country. So that's adflegal.org. Matt, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com.